My name is Brian Todd and Jesus has freed me from discouragement. 13 years ago, this past Friday, June, July 19th, 2006, I was involved in a boating accident in Masonburg Island at Wrightsville Beach uh, and lost my right leg above the knee. I was airlifted to New Hanover Regional Medical Center where I was put in a trauma unit or whatever. All the way up to this point, I had no idea what was wrong with me uh, or what had happened to me, but being airlifted, I realized it was, it was serious. Um, as I'm laying in the trauma unit or whatever, uh, they're paying a lot of attention to the right side of my body below my waist, even though I have no feeling and don't know what's going on. I asked the trauma doctor, I asked her, I, was at, I said, you know, did I hurt or lose my right leg? And she said that I did. And um, my first reaction was, how am I gonna live life and how am I gonna have a productive life without a right leg? And my brother who was in the trauma room with me looked at me and said, how would your kids have a productive life without a dad? And that was kind of a realization at that point that um, Jesus was with me and he was blessed me with that day or whatever. Over this next six to nine months, I had uh, a lot of frustration and discouragement as I was rehabbing and basically learning to walk all over again with a prosthetic. Um, there were times that, you know, I wanted to give up, but, you know, my leg wasn't coming back and I was going to have to make do with what I was given and just trust the Lord that he was going to look out for me or whatever. And it was, it was discouraging. Um, but people say that the opposite of discouragement is encouragement, and it is, and everybody needs encouragement in their life. But as I came to realize, it's not all about encouragement. It's about faith. You have to have faith, and my faith was probably the biggest thing other than the support from my friends and family in my church that, that got me through this and gave me the freedom over discouragement. One thing that's very important when you get freedom from discouragement is you need to share your victory with other people. You can tell people all day long what Jesus can do in their life, but if you show them what he's done in your life and you're an example of his uh, liberating you from your discouragement and your frustration, then that is a good witness and a good testimony from him. So I've used my accent for a number of things, but most importantly, it is when people ask me, the first things out of my mouth are, but for the grace of God and his guardian angel being with me that day, I should be dead. Because everybody involved from the wildlife officers to the trauma nurses and doctors to the Coast Guard people in the helicopter, all said that I was very, most of them said I was lucky. I wouldn't let anybody tell me that I was lucky. I wasn't lucky that day, I was blessed that day because God saw a need for me to continue to live in this world and to serve him and to be a good witness and testimony for him. Amen, amen, praise the Lord for that. Brian is sitting right back here in the corner. He sits here every Sunday. He has been so faithful as a servant in the life of the church all these years. I was there at the hospital early in those mornings uh, when that happened. I'll never forget that. But I also know that this testimony is an incredible testimony for overcoming discouragement. And it's an encouraging word for us as we're looking at this series that we've launched a couple weeks ago called Free. 
and we're talking about how we're liberated in Jesus. And, and while we created the baseline for that, that our freedom is found in a personal relationship with Christ, and we've been set free, there is an enemy called the devil, Satan, who wants to use things from his arsenal to try to enslave us again. Last week we saw that fear is something that he loves to use to try to enslave us, to cause us to submit to a yoke of slavery again, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. But also discouragement is one of those things. And the enemy loves to use discouragement in our lives. Now, there's not a person in this room who has not been discouraged at some time in your life. Some of you may be discouraged today. But it's when there's a long, prolonged time of discouragement that can really beat us down and wear us down and even enslave us again. Because we all find times in our lives when we are discouraged. I was reading this past week. Actually, I read it several, several years ago. I read about a bizarre incident that happened in California. Now, I know you're not surprised that bizarre things happen in California. But this particular thing was a bizarre event that happened in California. It seemed like there was a, fire, a wildfire. And, and the, 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 the fire department was sent, the rangers were sent out there. And as they went to fight this fire, they found in the heat of this fire, in one of the most intense sections of the fire, they found an injured man. In the middle of all this, he had several broken bones, third-degree burns. He was unconscious, but that was not the most odd thing about it. They found that this guy was in the heat of the fire in a complete scuba diving outfit. Fins, mask, he had the tank, everything that a scuba diver would have in the middle of this fire. Now, what, what shocked them was they couldn't figure out what was he doing here. There were no lakes nearby. So why would it be scuba diving? There were no roads into that place of the forest, and there were no vehicles around. How did this man in a scuba diving outfit land up in a fire? Well, as they began to investigate, they discovered this, that the man was scuba diving off the coast of California. At the same time, a fire started not far from where he was, and dispatchers were sent to put the fire out. Well, they didn't have enough water, so they sent helicopters with huge buckets to go to the ocean to scoop water up. You got it. And they scooped the man up in this bucket. And as they're flying over the treetops, he's screaming. The helicopter pilot can't hear a thing. He gets over the fire, and he dumps the water with the scuba diver in it. Talk about a bad day. Talk about being at the wrong place at the wrong time. They find him, and they revive him, and as the paramedics are working on this guy, they ask him, what are you allergic to? He said, helicopter pilots. <laughs> so, so at least he had some bit of a little bit of humor about that. Now, now, he was at the wrong place at the wrong time, and this was a discouragement, and he had a long recovery as a result of that. But the reality is that many times we're at the right place at the right time, and we still feel times of discouragement. We can have times where we become discouraged because there's a prolonged time in our life that may be beating us down. And some of you may be discouraged today. Maybe, maybe you experienced a death of a dream, and you've had this dream for years and years, and it seems that it's ending. Maybe you're discouraged because you've got a diagnosis from the doctor, and it's something to do with your health, and you never anticipated yourself being at this place in this station of your life. Maybe it's a loss of a job. And you had hoped that that career would work out. Maybe, 
maybe it's difficulty in a relationship or maybe even the end of a relationship. Maybe your children are not following the path that you had hoped for them. Maybe life has just been hard and you find yourself discouraged. Well, every one of us can find ourselves there. And the truth is this, that you and I have been given everything we need to have freedom from that in Christ. But because we have an enemy called the devil, he loves to use difficulties. He loves to get us discouraged because if we can become so discouraged that we quit, then he wins the battle. The Lord Jesus certainly knows what we go through because he has been through it himself. And when we find through the pages of scripture, we find great men and women who have lived discouraging lives. I think of Joseph. I think of a young man who was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Ten older brothers who hated him, who were jealous of him, who threw him into a pit and sold him to some Ishmaelites. They sold him to Potiphar, who was the captain of the guard in Egypt. And then he's falsely accused, and then he's thrown into prison for several years. And through all that time, you never hear Joseph complain or make a negative comment. But he was discouraged. It happens to people. It happens to churches. It happens to a whole nation. We discover this with the people of Israel. And we find this to be true in the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, open to Nehemiah chapter 4. Or if you have devices, just scroll to Nehemiah chapter 4. Or if you don't have either, we will have the scriptures on the screen. But in the book of Nehemiah, we find the people of Israel completely discouraged. Let me catch you up to speed on what's happened in the book of Nehemiah. The people of Israel have been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 586 B.C. He brings them off to Babylon. They're there in Babylon. Then the Medes and the Persians come and they defeat the Babylonians. And then under King Cyrus, he lets the Jews go back to Jerusalem. And he even funds some of the building. It's been 70 years the people of God have been in captivity it's been 70 years and Cyrus lets them go back. And there are two men who lead the people of Israel. Ezra, who is a priest, who leads them back and teaches them the truth of God's word. And then Nehemiah is an administrator. And he's the one that leads them back to rebuild the city. And the people go back and they're excited. And Nehemiah and Ezra are working together. And Nehemiah galvanizes the people together. They're excited because they're going to rebuild the city. And they're going to start by rebuilding the walls. Four and a half miles of walls around the circumference of Jerusalem. He galvanizes their hearts together. They're excited. And they've been working for about 30 days. But now they're discouraged. Because the enemies around them are threatening them. Sanballat and the Samaritans is to the north. Got a guy by the name of Tobiah and the Amorites to the east. Then to the south, there's a guy named Geshem and the Arabs. And to the west are a group of people called the Ashdodites. They're all working together and they do not want a revival of God's people in the land. So they are threatening them. They're slowing down the process. And the people have become so discouraged. They're losing heart. They're growing faint. And Nehemiah sees this. And in the book of Nehemiah, beginning in chapter 4, in verse 9 and following, we find four things that Nehemiah helps them to understand 
about discouragement. Now, there are two things I want to show you today about discouragement. And these two principles are the two main things we're going to focus on. And they flow right out of the book of Nehemiah. And as we pour through these, you're going to recognize, yeah, these are true of my life as well. And these are the things that the enemy will use to discourage us. Here's the first truth that we're going to discover. I must learn to detect the factors that lead to discouragement. I need to learn to detect the factors that lead to discouragement. Nehemiah is watching the people. They've been working hard for 30 days. And he's watching them lose their spirit. Their spirits are growing weak. They're growing faint. And what he does in this passage is he detects four key things that the enemy will use to discourage us in our lives. And we begin in verse 10, and here's what he says. The first thing we see is that there's fatigue. Fatigue is one of the factors in the beginning points of bringing discouragement to us. Look at verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. The strength is failing. The people have been working for 30 days. They're getting tired. Now, let me remind you what the situation was. Four and a half miles of walls completely collapsed. The Babylonians came in. They burned them down. They knocked every block off of another. None were standing together. They have to rebuild these walls. It's been 70 years that those blocks have been laying on the ground. Grass, probably bugs, scorpions, snakes, all kinds of stuff. And remember, they don't have bobcats. They don't have backhoes. They don't have excavators. They don't have tractors. And for 30 days, they are hauling heavy blocks. Back-breaking work from sunup to sundown. And after 30 days, they're halfway through. And they still have halfway left to go. You Let me say something. The halfway point many times in our lives is one of the most difficult things we have to deal with. Because when we get halfway through something, we recognize we've got that far to go. And sometimes we see people dealing with midlife crises. It's because they've been dealing with these things and they become tired of the same old, same old stuff. And they're fatigued. And they're getting exhausted. And I want to tell you, it's when you're tired that you become vulnerable. It's when you're tired that you become irritable. Have you noticed that? It's when you're working those 12-hour days and you're trying to get those reports done by the end of the month. It's when you're working those 12-hour shifts at the hospital or maybe at a clinic and you're having to deal with people. It's when you're out there working all day in the heat of a construction or maybe you've got a lawn care service. Maybe you're working long hours on your job. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and you're taking care of that little toddler and he or she is running all over the place and you're cleaning house and you're cooking meals. Maybe you're just tired. And when you and I, listen carefully, when we get fatigued, that's when the enemy circles our name on his agenda. Because it's when you're tired that he comes and you are most vulnerable. I want you to think about when Jesus was led into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When did the devil begin tempting Jesus? Was it day five? No. Was it day 10? No. Was it day 20? No. It wasn't day, it was day 40. And Jesus is spent. He is exhausted. He's spiritually tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. And the enemy comes at that point to work on him. The older I get, the more I realize that I need time of rest. 
The Lord Jesus even tells his disciples in Mark chapter 6, come away with me and let's rest for a while. A Sabbath rest is created by God who understands our bodies and that we need rest. And the enemy also knows that too. And when you and I push and push and push and we go and we don't seem to see the end of anything, we become fatigued. And it's when he becomes the most visible in our relationships and in our lives. See, fatigue is a factor. But let me give you a second factor. Not only was there fatigue, there's frustration. The people moved from being tired to be frustrated. Look at the second part of verse 10. The strength of those who bear the builders is failing, burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. There's too much. They get up every morning and they see that they've built the wall halfway. But they've got just as much to go. And they're looking at all the debris laying on the ground. They're looking at all the blocks that need to be picked back up. And what are they doing? They're frustrated. And they're ready to quit. They have what we call rubbish burnout. They were tired of all the work. Now I want you to know the word burnout today is a kind of a buzzword in circles. We hear it a lot. And I hear it a lot in churches. Oh, they're burned out. They're burned out. Some people think that being burned out is because you work too much or you work too hard. Burnout never happens because you work too hard. Burnout always happens because you're working too hard at the wrong thing. It always happens. You see, what happened was the people lost their vision and their perspective. They were dreaming that this was going to be a new city. There were going to be gleaming walls. Everything was going to be beautiful. We're going to be protected. And when it didn't happen... They lost their vision, and they lost their perspective, and they grew frustrated. I want to tell you what happens to believers. The same thing. The enemy knows it. And the enemy knows if I can just get you to lose your vision and to lose your perspective, then you'll burn out. There are three ways that we can live our life. Somebody put it this way. You can live out, you can wear out, or you can burn out. And the people who wear out and burn out are the people who have lost sight of vision and perspective. But the ones who live out are the ones who maintain their vision and their perspective. You want to know why many believers today, I believe, are burned out? It's because we're living for the wrong kingdom. We're working too hard for the wrong kingdom. We should be working for eternity, but we're spending our term working in the temporal. We're wearing ourselves out so we can have that certain home. We're wearing ourselves out so we can drive those certain cars. We're wearing ourselves out so our kids can go to that certain school. We're wearing ourselves out so we can have that boat or that motorcycle or that four-wheeler or that gator or whatever it is. And what happens is when we lose sight of the vision and the perspective of what God has for us, we can grow so frustrated because we're working for the wrong thing. And let me tell you, the enemy knows that. And if he can get you to work for the things of this world, you will be one frustrated believer because you're not fulfilling the vision and the perspective that God has for you. Let me give you a third thing. Failure. Their fatigue and their frustration led to failure. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. We can't do it. Nehemiah, 
great idea. That was a wonderful plan. You got us fired up. But Nehemiah, look, we can't do this. We're not able to do this. We're tired. We're frustrated. And now we're just a bunch of losers. See, the reality is this. They didn't fail. They just didn't finish. They didn't finish yet. And one of the things the enemy would have you do is to look at your failures and to try to use that to paralyze you. But the Holy Spirit will take those same things and use it to energize you. Because the reality is you haven't failed. You just haven't finished. And the thing is this, every single one of us in this room, without exception, is going to fail at something. We're going to fail. It's inevitable. It is a universal reality that we fail. But my failure is not what defines me. My failure can be the thing that God uses to refine me. I think of um, Thomas Edison. Do you know how many times it took him to make the battery work? He failed at creating the battery 2,000 times. A reporter asked him, he says, well, I guess that, um, that you've done this 2,000 times that you're a failure. He says, no, no, no. I've just discovered 2,000 ways the battery won't work. I love that attitude. And that's the same reality. I read a book years ago called Failing Forward. And that is a great title to a book because when we fail, God can use it to put us to where we need to be. The enemy wants to use that to paralyze us and discourage us. Here's the last one. We talked about this last week. Fear. 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 You see, they were fearful because now the enemies came to them and threatened them. Notice what they said. And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Listen, not only were the enemies threatening them, but their own people who were living outside of Jerusalem were saying, you got to quit. This is unhealthy. You can't do this. And their enemies are coming. Listen, when you're sleeping, we're going to come in at night. We're going to take you out. We're going to kill you. We're going to kill your children. We're going to kill everybody. The work will finish. You will be dead, and this place will be deserted. And there are own people saying, you know what? If you really know what's good for you, just stop the work. I want to tell you, there's nothing that derails the work of God quicker than negative talk and criticism. Negative talk and criticism. And I want to tell you, if you're involved in the kingdom's work, you will have both. And some of them will come from enemies. Some of them will come from your very friends. I can't tell you the number of times that I was at that halfway point in ministry opportunities when I received some of the most vicious, most venomous emails and phone calls and visits that I can imagine. I remember one time I had a man sit in my office and he looked at me and he said, the best day of my life will be the day you leave Scotts Hill. I've had emails, I've had phone calls, I've had things like that that come at those most discouraging times. And, and it's at those times that I wanted to quit. I wanted to trade my Bible in and become a mortician. I did, because when I straighten them up, they stay straight. So, you know, so, and all of us have those discouraging moments, don't we? And these are the things that the enemy 
uses, he loves to use these kinds of things. He will use fatigue. He will use your frustration. He will use um, um, the, the fear factor that other people can bring. He will use the failures of your past. And here's the thing that you need to understand. That these are the very things that are set before you that can lead you to discouragement. Nehemiah is so smart. He's not just a great leader. Nehemiah is a godly man. He's watching the people. He sees these factors playing into their lives. And what does he do? He leads to the second thing. And here's what we need to learn. I must learn how to disarm discouragement. I need to learn how to disarm it. It's one thing to detect it, okay? We've got it, but how do I disarm it? Nehemiah is so wise and so godly that he leads these people through five steps of completely disarming this discouragement. Some of you are in discouragement right now, and I want you to know that in Christ Jesus, you can take these things, and it will transform your thinking and your life. Let me give you the five things he does. Number one, cry out to God. This is so important. He begins with the most important thing. Cry out to God. It is the priority of overcoming discouragement. And yet, you know what we often do? Prayer is the last thing we do. What we try to do is work it out on our own. Well, I'll figure it out. I'll figure out a plan. And if all else fails, then I'll pray. It's not how Nehemiah operated. Matter of fact, if you look at the life of Nehemiah, prayer was always the priority of his life. In chapter 1, verse 4 of Nehemiah, he hears that the people of God are, are having a difficult time in Jerusalem and the walls are broken down. What does he do? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know how long he did that? Four months. Four months fasting and praying and asking God for wisdom to lead the people of God in Jerusalem. For four months. He was a cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, which means his job was to make sure that none of his food is poisoned. Artaxerxes is the son of Xerxes, who was a son of King Ahasuerus of Esther, what we just finished studying. And so this king says, why are you so sad in my presence? And so he goes before them, and we see in chapter 2, verse 4, and the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven under his breath. Father, please help me to have the right words. He prayed again. And he's always praying. On another situation, when Sanballat and these four guys come to try to criticize the wall and criticize their work, they come and they, in the presence of Nehemiah, bring all these criticisms and ridicule. And then we find in chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, rather than even responding to Sanballat, he immediately talks to God in their presence. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out of your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Can you imagine praying that in front of your enemies? They come over there and ridicule him. And then what do they do? They say, God, listen, these guys have insulted you. 
I pray that you would plunder them. I pray that you would not forgive their sins. I pray that you would not blot out their iniquities and you make their life miserable. How would you like a, somebody to complain and criticize to you and you just turn right around and say, Lord, I pray that you would knock the teeth out of their head. We don't pray like that. But Nehemiah did. Because he didn't turn to men first. He turned right to God. And in verse 9, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Here's the thing. What we too often do is we run to everybody else. We tell everybody else how difficult our life is. We go tell everybody else how discouraged we are. We go tell other people. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have people praying for you. But here's a radical thought. Go to God first. Isn't that radical? I want to tell you, if you're discouraged, cry out to him. Go to the Psalms and look what David does. 150 songs written by David and some other and then what we find is they were so gut-wrenchingly honest to God. And they cried out to him for every circumstance of their life. I'm going to tell you, if you're struggling with loneliness, if you're dealing with discouragement, whatever it is, begin with him. Because he's the one that knows you better than anybody else. And he's the only one who can do something about it. Begin with God. Cry out to him. But secondly... Continue the work God has given you to do. Now, this is so important. Continue the work that God has given you to do. You know what we want to do? We live in a culture we want to quit. When things get tough, we want to quit. We're like the little boy who's upset and takes his basketball and goes home, and nobody else can play at the park now. We're like that. We quit. We quit our jobs. We quit school. We quit our churches. We quit our marriages. And the enemy knows if we quit, then we'll never solve the solution and we'll never complete the work. And they were really to throw up their hands and quit. But what did Nehemiah do? Verse 6, so we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. You know what Nehemiah knew the best thing for them? Was to keep working. Don't quit. Don't give in to the enemy. Press forward and complete what you have. Nehemiah not only told them that, but he modeled that. A little bit later, Tobiah and Sanballat come to him and they say, hey, Nehemiah, I want you to come off the wall. I want you to come meet us in the valley. We want to have a conference together. Now, any employer, any businessman knows that conferences and committees are one of the greatest ways to stop production. <laughs> But they wanted to meet with him because they wanted to kill him. And his response in Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 3 is classic. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Guys, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. It's not that I won't come down. I can't come down because God has called me to this task and I'm sticking with it until it is completed and I don't have time to meet with you. Some of you are ready to throw in that dream and God is saying to you, no, no, you're doing a great work. Don't come down. Some of you are ready to throw in that career and God is saying to you, no, no, you're doing a great work don't come down. 
Some of you are ready to give up on your kids or your grandkids. And God is saying to you, no, no, no. You're doing a great work. Don't come down. Some of you are ready to give up on your marriage. And God is saying, no. You're doing a great work. Don't come down. And it may be with school. It may be with other things. And the enemy wants you to stop. But Jesus is saying, no. You're doing a great work. We need to continue what God is calling us to do. We cry out to him. We continue. But thirdly, we concentrate on the big picture. I love this. Concentrate on the big picture. You see, what happened was they're building this four and a half miles of wall. And it's a, it's a, it's a strange-shaped wall. And because of that, people are working on the wall in front of their own homes, and they can't see other people on the walls. So they think they're the only ones working. They're becoming discouraged. You know, man, we're working hard. Is anybody else? I don't hear anybody else chipping bricks. I don't hear anybody else with a victory cry. And they're thinking we're by ourselves. They could not see the unity of the force of labor. So what does he do? He doesn't change his vision. He changes his strategy. And we find that Nehemiah in verse 13, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. I'm going to put weapons in your hands, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm also going to position you strategically where you see other people working. And everywhere there's a group of people, there's a wall being rebuilt. And everywhere you see people along. You know how many, you know how many thousands of people were in Jerusalem? About 75,000 people working on the wall together. And when they saw each other, there was great encouragement. Let me tell you one of the greatest dangers of Christians is we love to isolate ourselves from people. We like to pull away from people. We like to think that we're the only ones struggling with this issue. I'm the only one going through this problem. I'm the only one being discouraged with this. I'm the only one that's ever faced this. And the reality is that's not true. And I want to tell you, we have not done a good job as Christians encouraging one another. And here's why. Do you know we use the phrase a lot, we're Christians. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. That's really not a biblical term. We find that to be used in a church in Antioch where they called believers Christians and it was a derogatory term to mean little Christ. You know, the common language of the New Testament is that we're disciples. We're disciples is a lot different from being calling myself a Christian and a disciple. And you know that the most common phrase used of believers are brothers and sisters. We are family. And we're meant to live as a family. And when you're a child of God, when you're a disciple, when you're a believer, and you're not living within the context of a family, you are a spiritual orphan. And you're living life on your own. And you're disconnected. And there's discouragement. But it's when we do life together. We do life corporately together. We're encouraged together. But I want to tell you, one of the healthiest things you can do as a believer is to be in a small group of other believers who are going through the same situations in life with you, so you encourage one another, you pray for one another, you serve one another, you lift up one another, you love one another. 
And when we pull ourselves away, we fail to see the big picture of what God is doing all around us. Concentrate on the big picture. If you're going through a discouraging time, my question to you is, are you connected with a small group? Are you connected with other believers? If you're not, then you're trying to do life as a spiritual orphan. And an orphan has to do everything on his own or her own. Concentrate on the big picture. And you'll recognize you're not the only one who's struggling with cancer. You're not the only one who's a single mom. You're not the only one who can't make sense in the right career. You're not the only one trying to figure out what should my major in college be. We do life together. Here's a fourth thing. Claim the encouragement from God's promises. Claim the encouragement from God's promises. I love what Nehemiah does here. He reminds them of the promises of God. All these things are going on. And in verse 14, he says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Hey, remember God. Remember what he's done in the past. Remember how he sustained you. Remember all of those things that he's worked out in your life. Remember his encouragement. And when you remember these things, then what happens is you'll see how great and how awesome God is. The people do that. Look at verse 15. You know what happens? And when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. We remembered God. We remembered him. Let me tell you, one of the greatest things you can do when you're going through discouragement is open God's word and read it. One of the most difficult things to do when you're going through discouragement is to open God's word and to read it because you don't feel like it. But it is far easier to act myself into feeling instead of feeling myself into actions. And when I get God's word and I begin to pour through it and I make a willful choice, what happens eventually or my emotions catch up to my will. There are days where I do not feel like serving my wife. I don't. But you know what I've learned? When I get up and I serve her, then my emotions catch up with my will. And when you're going through a discouraging time, the encouragement from God's word is one of the greatest things you need. And you make a willful choice to read it out loud and to listen to what he says and to renew your heart and know, hey, he will not abandon you. Here's the last one. Carry someone else's burden. You want to overcome discouragement? Carry someone else's burden. This is so important. Nehemiah does this beautifully. He tells them in verses 16 through 17, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction. Half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that they each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Those who were weak were helped by the strong. Those who were old were helped by the young. Those who were short were helped by the tall. 
I like to think those who were tall were helped by the short. But they carried each other's burdens. You want to know why that's so important? Discouragement is inward. It always is. Discouragement enables me to have some of the greatest pity parties humanity has ever known. And it's all about me. Oh, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how I've been treated. You don't know what they said about me. Oh, you don't know how terrible of a failure I am. We're all good at it, aren't we? We really are. Some of you are concert experts. (laughs) You want to get over discouragement? Serve somebody. Minister to someone. Feed the homeless. Take care of that elderly neighbor. Carry somebody's burden. Then what happens is your focus begins to be outward. And you impact other people. There are many people in the church who are here so that everybody else can minister to them. And when it doesn't happen, there's complaining and criticizing. Nobody's taking care of me. But when I have the mentality of turning it outward, saying, Lord, who can I minister to? Then what happens is that discouragement becomes encouragement. And the enemy loses. Why? Because I'm carrying somebody else's Some of you are going through discouragement right now and the factors that we talked about are reality in your life. You know it. You see it. There's the fatigue. There's the frustration. There's the failure. There's the fear. And the answer for you right now is to call out to God. Call out to Him right now. Be honest with Him. Father, you know the discouragement. You know how that person has hurt me. Father, you know that I want to call fire down on them right now. But Father, I turn to you to deliver me from this. Keep working. Continue the work that he's called you to. Concentrate on a bigger picture that you're not in this on your own. Claim the encouragement from His Word and let His Word just floor through your heart and your mind and the promises sustain you and get involved in helping others. When I think about these five things, and I'll close with this. When I think about these five things, I think about Jesus. And here's a reality. Jesus is never going to ask you to do something that He Himself hasn't done. He never will. When Jesus was discouraged, he called out to the Father every day. If you look at the life of Jesus, he was regularly, every single morning, calling to the Father. Every difficulty of his life, he went to the Father. He was always calling out to God. He continued to work. Even when he was hanging on the cross, what did the religious leaders and the Pharisees say to him? They said to him, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Basically, he said, I cannot come down because I'm doing a great work. 
he had the right perspective. He had the right picture. He concentrated on a big picture that what he was doing was redeeming mankind. He understood that. And he would continue to press on in completing that task. Jesus claimed the encouragement from God's word. He knew, Psalm 2, that you would not let your Holy One see decay. He is going to raise me from the dead. And he carried your burden and my burden, every one of us, so that you and I can be free. So you can be free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not submit again to a yoke of discouragement. You're free. If you're here this morning and you're a child of God, the enemy wants to discourage you. Jesus wants to encourage you. You've got everything you need to walk in encouragement. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I want to tell you, Jesus is the answer for your life. He's not just the answer for today. He's the answer for eternity. He's the only one that can bring you into a relationship with God. He's the only one who can forgive you of your sins. He's the only one who can redeem you. And today he stands before you and says, I am your answer. You think you're free. You're not free. Because one day you're going to stand before a holy God and give an account for every sin. And you're on your own without me. And you will not stand under the wrath of God. But with me, there's forgiveness. And with me, there's grace. And with me, there's eternity. There it is. And he is standing before you today, giving you the answer your life now and for the future. He's your only